Proverbs 11.30 is a familiar verse to many people. They may not have memorized it in the ESV where it says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. You may know it from the King James where it says, He that winneth souls is wise. And that's become a, a verse for many people to sort of claim as a guide for their particular evangelistic efforts, maybe their particular evangelistic methods. This becomes their sort of theme verse. But the verse really is much broader than that. It speaks about much more than just evangelism. It really speaks about the ability to capture people's hearts, to, we might say in modern terms, influence people. And it does it with an interesting image. It speaks in the first half of the verse about a, a fruit that becomes a tree. Now, you might assume that the image there is simply that of reproduction. Fruit has seeds, seeds fall to the ground, they become trees. But that's not really the way that this is being used. In fact, the words tree of life, that phrase tree of life, if you were to study it throughout the Old Testament, what you would find is that particular image is an image of refreshment. It's an image of rejuvenation. It's an image of shelter and strengthening for people. And that's really what the verse is talking about. It's saying the product, it's saying the result of a righteous life is a kind of a sheltering influence, a kind of a rejuvenating influence, a kind of a influence that is restorative in people's lives. It provides a place of safety. It lifts burdens. And because of all that, the righteous life captures souls. It wins them. It influences people by being attentive to their particular burdens, their needs, and their weaknesses. The power pack verse with tremendous wisdom on what it is to influence people, what it is to live a wise and righteous life. And that image is picked up, of course, and carried into the New Testament in some other familiar verses, whether it's 1 Peter 3, where it talks about a woman living the kind of life so that she can win her husband without a word. Or when Jesus uses it in Matthew 18, and he says, if you see your brother sinning, you go to him in private. And if you talk to him, you may actually win your brother. And so that idea of winning someone is picked up in the New Testament, but probably no place more than our passage for this morning, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in verses 19 through 23, where Paul uses that phrase, that word, five times in these few short verses. He says it over and over again, what he does in his life and his ministry that he might win, that he might win, that he might win over and over again, that he might win people to Christ. And what does he really mean by all of this? What is he really wanting to do? Well, he's wanting to win hearts. He's wanting to win souls. He's wanting to influence people. Ultimately, he's wanting to see as many people saved and won to Christ as possible. In fact, he'll even use in verse 22 a, a different word. He talks about saving as many as possible seeing there that this is really synonymous with this concept of winning them. 
It's not just believers, though. I mean, unbelievers. It's also believers. As you see through moving through this context, the way that he speaks about all the groups that he's mentioning, he's not just talking about people who are outside the church. He's talking about people inside the church. He wants to live his life. He wants the fruits of his righteousness to cast such a broad influence, to create such a place, to, to relieve such burdens in people's lives that he will win their hearts for the sake of the Savior. Now, before we get into the details, let me begin just by reading this, these few f- verses for us so that we can kind of uh, familiarize ourselves with it. He says in verse 19, though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant or a slave to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Most people recognize this passage, if for no other reason, because of its catchphrase, I have become all things to all people. And it has really become something of a rallying cry for a whole generation of leaders and of people touting what they call contextualization. may not be a word you're familiar with, In past generations, it was used by some to simply refer to the application of biblical truths to various contexts. But in its current usage, it has become a slogan of sorts to suggest that the church or you as an individual need to construct a message or construct a theology for all the various contexts in which you might find yourself. And so you find people publishing articles and publishing books and calling for the development of things like African theology or Asian theology or postmodern theology or urban theology or feminine theology or whatever it might be. All of these adaptations come under the rubric of contextualization. Even beyond that, you see people even going to the point of saying that you and I need to adapt our ethics and even our morals to the culture and the worldview of all these various contexts, trying to suggest that what the world really needs, if it's going to be one, is it needs to see the gospel lived out within the context without ripping a person out of their uh, culture. And people say all this, often citing the Apostle Paul and his terminology here is their reason. They say they simply need to become all things to all people. I remember the first time I really encountered this. I was doing ministry in the Columbia River Gorge. I was on assignment, uh, outreach to windsurfers. I know everyone's always asking, how did you get that gig? The Lord works in mysterious ways. So I was up in the Columbia River Gorge trying to reach windsurfers. And my partner Uh, told me at the beginning, here's what we need to do. He says, we need to become all things to all people. We need to become windsurfers. And so that's what we did. We went out and spent thousands of dollars on windsurfing equipment. 
We would go out early in the morning. We would, you know, bumble and fumble around, eventually be able to get up and go back and forth and back and forth across this river. It's, uh, it's uh, interesting, but about, you know, about 80% of my way through my assignment up there, it occurred to me that I have just spent all my time learning windsurf and haven't shared the gospel once. And it was interesting. Uh, my, my partner was coming to the same realization. And so he had a solution that the windsurfers surf on Sunday morning also. So we should stop going to church on Sunday morning and we should become like they are. And this was his approach. Whatever they are, this is what you become. This is what you have to do to win them. You see people doing that all the time with this word. You see people calling for the removal of anything that is distinctively Christian. You see them calling for the removal of Christian terminology. And that goes beyond just eradicating the sort of cliches that we have and returning to biblical terminology. I would be all in favor of that. But this is a calling for the rejection of traditional biblical terms and the replacement with new and contemporary and sophisticated or trendy language. You see people in the name of contextualization uh, making a call for greater and greater attempts to immerse ourselves into the surrounding culture and to approximate our behavior into the broader culture, even in things such as the use of crude and coarse language, the appropriation of suggestive media, the use of images, even the consumption of alcohol and other addictive substances. Mimicking the broader culture more and more in its moral stances, all in the name of becoming all things to all people so that we might win some. You even have some people saying that now we, in our generation, have the opportunity to see the horizon of the gospel vanish away in the horizon of the culture. So that the two become so virtuously intertwined in ways that past generations have never seen. Sounds like a wonderful picture. Problem is, you can't find that in Scripture. And that certainly is in Paul's intent here. And anyone who is seeking to use Paul's words here misunderstands what he's saying. And they misunderstand the broader context of this letter. He is certainly not suggesting that we ever adopt moral and ethical standards of the culture in order to win the culture. He never says, nor does he imply that to the drunk, we should become a drunk. To the adulterer, we should become an adulterer. To the idolater, we should become an idolater. Or even to the reviler and the coarse jester, that we should become a reviler so that we can win revilers. In fact, if you remember just a few verses earlier, a few chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, you can look there in verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Paul said it this way, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You see, the reason that Paul wouldn't become anything like this, 
The reason he wouldn't become these things within the broader culture, the reason that he wouldn't mimic the culture is because his goal was always to pull people out of it. His goal was always to transform people. His goal was always exactly what he did with the Corinthians, to see them washed, to see them cleansed, to see them uh, uh, sanctified, to see them transformed. In other words, we would just sort of summarize it. He wanted to see them converted. That is a word for transformation. His goal wasn't to win them to himself. His goal wasn't to win them to his name and to his population, uh, popularity or to, to, to adapt himself to them so much so that they would be accepting of him. His goal was to win them to Christ. And winning them to Christ was calling them to repentance. Calling them to renewal. And so when Paul, what Paul says here, or when he says that he became all things to all men, he's not talking about contextualization, certainly not in the sense that you would use the word today. He's talking about what older missionaries would have referred to as accommodation. Accommodation. He would, in other words, accommodate his, uh, accommodate, excuse me, the weaknesses or his personal preferences or his uh, uh, comforts or whatever it might be, he would accommodate himself to the weaknesses and the preferences and the sensitivities of various groups among whom he ministered. Where it didn't violate God's word, he would sometimes even participate with them in some of their presence, uh, preferences. Where it didn't violate God's word, he would tolerate some of their lifestyles. He says, this is really, for Paul, all about giving up himself. This is all about sacrificing himself. This is all about, for Paul, giving up himself to gain others, to win others to Christ. That's what this is really, this is really what Paul's aiming at here. He, he wants to, to do everything possible within his power to see them come to faith and transformation in Christ. He begins, you'll see in verse 19, by talking about the freedom that he's had. He's kind of made that the theme of this chapter. He talks about his freedom all the way through. Like all believers, he has been given freedom in the gospel. He's been liberated from obligations to, to the Old Testament laws. He's been given up uh, so from, from slavery to those things. He has... He has been given this kind of liberty in Christ. And yet, he says, despite all of that, he makes himself a slave, a servant to all. That is to say, he will modify whatever it takes in terms of his preferences, his habits, his comforts, his privileges. He'll modify all of that stuff if it meant enhancing his opportunity to influence the thinking and hearts of people around him. He would enslave himself to their ideas of what are important, to their preferences, to their schedules even, to their comfort, for the opportunity to influence them. 
You know, it's unfortunate. A lot of people don't have that attitude. When it comes to ministry, you talk to them. Talk to them about ministering to other people. They will do whatever you ask them in ministry as long as it doesn't demand much of them. As long as everyone around them is accommodating them. As long as people are willing to adapt to them and adapt to their schedule and adapt to their preferences and adapt to their hang-ups, as long as people around them are willing to make all the concessions and to make all the preparations and to make all the adjustments and to make all the accommodations, if all those things are met, then they'll serve. But if you ask them to serve with someone who's difficult, if you ask them to serve in a way that they have to make accommodations, that they have to make concessions, they have to make sacrifices, they have to make adjustments, then it's a deal killer. There are people who seriously think of other people that if they want to be ministered to by me, then it's their job to meet my expectations. Well, Paul turns all that on his head. Not only did he not demand people to meet all of his expectations, he says he enslaved himself to theirs. He enslaved himself to theirs. He says in another place, I endure all things for the sake of the gospel. Excuse me, for the sake of the elect. They may obtain a salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul says, I'll endure anything. I mean, I'll put up with anything. I'll put up with any kind of inconvenience, any kind of accommodation. I'll put up with anything if it means the opportunity to win someone to the gospel. I will enslave myself. Now, unless we misunderstand what he's talking about, he gives us several examples, several illustrations here of exactly what he's talking about. In fact, he gives us three sort of um, strategies, if you will, three ways in which he went about this, three uh, illustrations of the various groups in which he sought to minister and how he would apply this principle. And they become for us sort of three ways in which we can waive our rights, three ways we can give up ourselves to gain others. Paul, first of all, begins by speaking about the religious or what he calls here the Jews. He says to them, or he says here that to the Jews, he became like a Jew or In that same verse, he says, to those under the law, he became as one under the law. Those are two phrases really to talk about the same group of people. But for our purposes, what we're, as we consider his example here, we might as well just sort of generalize those people as those who are religious, those who are adhering to some sort of strict uh, outward form, some sort of strict religious code. That's really what Paul's talking about here. This is what the Jews were. And it's not to say the other people that he ministered to had no religion. Some of them were pagan idolaters. But the Jews, above every other group of people in the Roman Empire, were known for their strict adherence to rigorous standards. In fact, among all the minority groups in the Roman Empire, they alone were exempted from from military service because they were such rigorous adherents to things like dietary laws and Sabbath laws. It made them difficult to work with because of all those things. Now, Paul, of course, knew that he was free from those kinds of things. He had been raised within them. 
He had been brought up that way. But he knew as well as anyone else that he had been freed from obligations to things like Sabbaths and things like dietary laws. In fact, he tells the Colossian believers in Colossians 2, let no one pass judgment on you in regard to food or drink or festivals or new moon or Sabbath. Don't let anyone, he says, bring you under judgment. Don't let anyone, he says later on, take you captive with those kinds of things. Paul knew that a believer, as a believer in Christ, he had been freed from the obligation to all those things. And yet he says here in this chapter, to those under the law, I became like one under the law. This is the champion of Christian freedom. No stronger proponent of Christian freedom that you'll find anywhere. For freedom, he says to the Galatian believers, for freedom, Christ has set you free. So stand firm, he says, and don't subject yourself to a yoke of slavery again. This is the Apostle Paul, the strong champion of freedom, and yet here he is obligating himself or placing himself, enslaving himself once again to these laws that he knows have no value whatsoever in accomplishing anything before God, no value in accomplishing anything in his standing before God. He knows that the people who are uh, adhering to them are misguided. He knows that they don't have correct understanding, and yet he will adapt himself to their preferences for the sake of building a bridge into their life. When he ministered to these people, still committed to those laws, he subjected himself not only to their ritual requirements, to the ceremonial requirements, he subjected himself to all their legalistic observances that were of no benefit to him simply because he wanted to win them. He wanted to win them. He did it for the greatest benefit of the ministry. That's interesting. We have a couple of illustrations of this in the Scripture itself. I find it most interesting that in Acts 15, at the end of Paul's first missionary journey, word had reached the Jerusalem church about his his emphasis on freedom. And so they kind of convened a meeting. They convened a council. They got all the elders of the church in Jerusalem and uh, along with all the apostles, and they gathered together, and they debated this issue about Christian freedom. And at the end of the day, in Acts 15, James stands up, and he sort of summarizes uh, the position that they would take. They would not require of any of these Gentile converts that they were obligated to any of the Mosaic law. But he says to them, except, or he says in verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, by sexual immorality, by that which is strangled, and by blood. Four parallel uh, Greek phrases there, all associated with pagan idolatry. He says anything that is associated with those things and their idolatrous practices, if you could abstain from those, because those are the most offensive to the Jewish people. What's interesting, it's a strong statement about freedom that the church puts out there in Acts 15. And in the very next chapter, this is what we read, verse 1. 
Acts 16, Paul says, it says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because the Jews who were in those places, for all, they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now you would think that Paul, having been personally attacked in his message and having had to go through the battle in the Jerusalem council and having to defend his position would continue to be such a champion of freedom in Christ that he would go out there and he would want to flaunt the kind of freedom that he has. He would never ask anyone to do something like this, but he does. Because although he understood on a doctrinal level, on the level of truth, that circumcision was not necessary he would still ask that those who ministered alongside of him go through the pain, the inconvenience, the lack of necessity, but still go through such a procedure for the sake of not causing others to stumble. Later on, you go to Acts 21, Paul shows up to Jerusalem, he's there, they begin to discuss his gospel, and the Jerusalem leaders say, look, this is what you need to do. There are a lot of Jews here in this city, obviously, some of them even believers, but they've heard about your gospel of freedom. And so in order to cause them not to stumble, this is what we want you to do. He tells them in the middle of Acts uh, Acts 21, verse 17 and following, he says, take these four brothers who are under a vow, go to the temple, pay their fees, have your head shaved, and show to all the Jews that you yourself are not some radical rebel against their personal adherence to the Mosaic Code. Guess what? Paul did it. Paul did it. I guess it raises the question, would you go have your head shaved? Would you go foot the bill for other people's religious hang-ups? Would you go through all that trouble, all that expense, all that inconvenience just for the sake of winning someone? That's what Paul's saying to us. That's what he says he did. He he became like them when he was with them. This is what it talks about. And he would go through the inconvenience. He'd go through the pain. He'd go through the, 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 the circumstances, the lack of comfort, the lack of privileges, whatever it might be. He was willing to endure it, he says, for the sake of winning them. All the while, back in 1 Corinthians 9, understanding that he himself has no obligation to any of this. He is not under the law, he says. He not only talks about this group, but he mentions another one, not just the religious, but the unreligious. That's kind of how we could categorize those mentioned in verse 21, those outside the law. Those outside the law. They weren't, as I said, necessarily unreligious in the broader sense. They were pagan idolaters, many of them, or some of them were unreligious. But regardless of what of those two categories they fell into, they were nowhere near as rigorous as Jews were. And so Paul lived very differently when he was among them. Very differently from the way he lived among Jews, very differently than the way he even grew up and what was familiar to him. 
it's not surprising many people have um, approached these not just in religious terms, but in cultural terms. It's not surprising because most cultures have some sort of religious affiliation behind them, whether it's Muslim or Christian or Confucianism or animism, as those religious affiliations sometimes that define their terminology, their holidays, their festivals, even the kinds of foods that they use. And so there is a, there is a cultural sense as well as a religious sense, but, but for our purposes, we can just sort of consider all of these people sort of the unreligious in, 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 in relation to Paul's background. And he says when he was among them, that he lived as one who is outside of the law. That is to say, when he was with them, he ate what they ate. He went where they went. He dressed as they dressed. He identified as closely as possible with all of their customs. Not only that, he would tolerate their lifestyles. He would tolerate their lifestyles. You remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? At the end of that chapter, he says in verse 9, Look, I wrote to you a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd have to go out of the world. You know what he's saying there? I wrote to you not to associate, not to tolerate, not to be around these kinds of people, but I wasn't talking about unbelievers You misunderstood my letter. I was talking about if there's a so-called believer, that is to say, you should never tolerate that kind of living inside the church from someone who claims to be a believer. But outside the church, what is he saying? Yes, you should tolerate it. You should associate with it. This is Paul's approach. He would tolerate this kind of lifestyle. He would live among them. He would would spend time with them. He would tolerate their lifestyles in order to win their hearts, build a bridge into their lives to eventually win them to Christ. As we said, with that kind of goal, obviously, to spend time with them is not the same as emulating their life. It's not the same as adopting their lifestyle. It's not the same as immersing yourself in it. He tolerated it, but he didn't mimic it. As a matter of fact, to clarify that point, he says it very clearly here. Though he was ministering among those who were outside the law, he says, I myself was not outside, excuse, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. You say, well, wait a second. I don't understand. Didn't he just say in verse 20 that he's not under the law of God? Now he says he's not under, that he's not outside the law of God? All this really hinges on your understanding of the way Paul uses this terminology. Law, for Paul, frequently referred in a very narrow sense to the Mosaic Code. 
the Mosaic Law. And this was what Paul would always champion that you and I have been freed from. As a matter of fact, turn with me over to Galatians chapter 5. I referenced it earlier, but it's helpful to look at that one more time. To understand not only what he says here, but what he says back in 1 Corinthians 9. Galatians chapter 5, he says in verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not be subject or do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So he's saying you've been set free, you need to stand firm in it. You go down further in the chapter to verse 13, and this is what we read. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. See, it's at this point in Galatians chapter 5 that you understand when Paul says you've been set free from the law. When he says you've been set free from the law, he's talking about the Mosaic law and he's talking about all of it. Otherwise, verse 13 would be unnecessary. He wouldn't have to tell him, oh, you've been set free, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He could just say, now, brothers, you've been set free from certain portions of the law. But then certain portions of the law, you're still obligated to. No, he doesn't compromise the freedom. He simply says, don't use the freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. This is Paul's teaching everywhere you go throughout the scripture where there's uh, Romans chapter 7 where he compares our relationship to the law like that of a woman who was married to a man and her husband's died. She's completely free from all legal obligations. And yet in the same context, he says just a little bit earlier, you need to understand that despite this freedom that you have, sin still has an enslaving influence in your life. You can be free from the yoke of slavery to the law only to enslave yourself to the flesh. And that's no good. In fact, back over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is what Paul says there. Verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. This is the way Paul understood his freedom. Same way he says in Galatians 5.13, don't use your freedom as an opportunity of the flesh, but serve one another. He says the same thing here. Yeah, all things are lawful, but use your freedom as an opportunity to serve, to love, to build up one another. This is this is really the broader context to understand what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. When he says, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not outside the law of God when I'm living with these people. I'm not antinomian. That's simply a word that, that means someone who is against law, someone who is against regulation, someone who is against rules and against standards. Paul says, that's not me. I may, I may declare freedom from Mosaic Code, but I'm not free from God. And I'm not free from His holiness. In fact, he says, I am obligated. I am obligated to the law of Christ. I'm obligated to the law of Christ. You say, well, what does that mean? I mean, you say you're not under the law of God, but you're under the law of Christ. Isn't Christ God? 
Yes, but Paul's, as I said, distinguishing the Mosaic Code, that which is spelled out specifically in books like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, excuse me, Deuteronomy. The overall uh, Mosaic Code spelled out there versus the overall demands throughout the New Testament. And specifically, specifically what he calls here the law of Christ. You say, well, what is the law of Christ then? We're not under the Mosaic Code, you say, but we're under the law of Christ. What is that? What am I supposed to follow? How am I supposed to behave? Well, in Jesus' most comprehensive statement on the law, he says in Matthew 22 that the foundation, the fountainhead and the source of all the law and the prophets are two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two principles, he says, stand behind all of the Old Testament. And so what we do in adherence to our Savior is we endeavor to understand those principles, to see the way not only that they were applied within the code of Moses, within the law of Moses, but then to bring the principle into our own lives and our own situation and apply it there. This is exactly why Christ, in His great exposition of the Old Testament, could stand up and say, talking about the Mosaic Law, you have heard that it was said... But I say to you, and speaking in direct reference to some of those laws, what does he do? He takes that principle that is embedded there and he expands on it and he applies it in an even broader context than what Moses did. That's what we do. That's the law of our Savior. The Old Testament law then becomes an illustration, not a binding obligation for what it looks like to love God and to love others. And Paul's saying that is what we are forever bound to do. Well, one final group that Paul mentions here, not only the religious and unreligious, but also the weak, or we might even say the immature. Paul says in verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. And once you get to this verse, you you understand he's not just talking about evangelism anymore. And he's not even talking about certainly culture anymore. And this is specifically religious language related to people who are professing believers. We know that because this is the terminology he used back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. A weak person, remember we looked at this, is a person who has an ill-informed or a inadequately informed understanding. And so because they are dealing constantly with erroneous ideas, their conscience is governed by those ideas and is sometimes erroneously afflicted over things that should not be. Another way to say that is that they deal with guilt, but it's false guilt. It's not guilt that God's word lays on them. It's guilt that their traditions or their background or their upbringing or their misunderstanding lays on them. And so they go around all the time dealing with these things, these doubts, these afflictions in their mind, and Paul calls them weak. They're weak. And what he's saying to us is that when he was with these people, 
These people who were unconvinced in their consciences, who still deal, dealt sometimes with superstitions, who dealt with mystical ways of thinking, and that would be this group, because these were not former Jews, these were for, former pagans. And they particularly dealt with superstition related to meat that had been set before an idol and then was later served at the meal table. And they thought somehow that eating that meat would bring them what is essentially bad luck. Paul says, I would accommodate myself to them. I would yield. I would enslave myself. I would forego freedoms. I would forego my uh, my own, uh, I guess you could say, privileges. I would forego my own comforts. All out of sensitivity to their doubts, to their superstitions, sometimes to their mysticism, and to their conscience. Now, that doesn't mean Paul would hide the truth. It doesn't mean that he would somehow affirm them in that way of life, but he would not live in an unnecessarily offensive way to them. He did all this, he says, so that by all means, anything that was allowable within the Word of God, I would do. I'd give up my, my, my rank. I would give up my position. He's already outlined in this chapter how he gave up his own income. He gave up his right to receive uh, compensation as a preacher of the gospel. He gave up his, his livelihood, his freedom, his privileges for the sake of the gospel. That was his goal. Because as he says in verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. A beautiful word there. Soon, uh, koinonos, a word koinonia, you may know, the word for fellowship. He says, look, I want to fellowship with these guys in the gospel. I want to fellowship with them in the blessings of the gospel. He says, this is why Paul couldn't adapt himself to their morals and their ethics. This is why he couldn't emulate their coarse uh, language or their immoral living. Because that undermines the whole goal of bringing them to the point of the blessing of the gospel. And being able to share together with them, being able to fellowship together with them in its benefits. That's his reward. This is what it takes if you want to have the kind of life that influences, if you, want to, if you want to win the lost, this is what it takes to minister to the weak. This is what it takes if you want to see people reach maturity. It takes someone willing to give up in order to gain. It takes someone willing to surrender. It takes someone willing to set aside personal preferences. It takes someone willing to accommodate and to tolerate someone willing to become weak if necessary. In other words, it takes the fruit of a righteous life who welcomes all people into the sort of shade of their tree of life, the sheltering place where they can come and not be made unnecessarily to feel like an outsider and not be made unnecessarily to feel unwanted. A shade where they can win their hearts and win their souls. An open arm 
for all people by all means so that we can see them come to Christ and see them mature into all that He has for them. Let's stand together and we will be dismissed by a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for the challenge. So thankful for the example given to us by the Apostle Paul. But Lord, more than that, we're grateful for the example given to us by our Savior who didn't come to be served, but to serve. He came to give His life as a ransom. Lord, we understand that everything Paul says here is just the application of the cross to his life. It's just doing ministry in the shadow of the cross. And Lord, woe to us if we, if we think that we have grasped some level of understanding. And yet it doesn't produce in us this readiness, this willingness to yield ourselves and enslave ourselves to the needs of others. Lord, you have freed us gloriously. May we not use our freedom for selfish pursuits, but in love serve one another as the law of Christ would demand. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.